Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see everyone. As I was singing that song, I was thinking about, you know, we hang our hat on the sovereignty of God, right? God is in control, complete control over all things, including the salvation of the souls of men. He's in control of everything in the universe. I love the old quote by R.C. Sproul, there's not a random molecule in the universe. Our God is the sovereign God of the universe, and he is the author of the Bible. And so we want to take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and it was written sometime between 440 and 400 B.C., and this is important for us to, to grasp as we move into this today. A hundred years after the Jews had returned back to their homeland after being exiled in Babylon for some 70 years. And I must say, I, I really, truly, personally, I mean, I always enjoy studying the scriptures. I always enjoy whatever it is that we're going through as a church, but I've especially enjoyed our study in the Minor Prophets. And I'm a little sad, actually, to be honest with you, that we are at the end of uh, this uh, journey that we've been on as a local church to examine the Minor Prophets. Um, one of the things that, of course, I have grasped onto as I have gone through meticulously through each of these minor prophets, um, I think the thing that really has stuck out to me, and it's a big picture kind of a thing, and I hope that you have also grasped it, but I'm appreciative about all that we've learned as to what's important to God, as to what's important to our God, because after all, that should be the, the compass of our lives, right? That, that we're willing to do whatever it takes to be faithful to our God, who has done so much for us. This sovereign God that we just sang about, God, majestic, holy, righteous God, sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come down to the from the glories of heaven to a sin-tainted world, a sin-tainted earth, to live an absolutely perfect life, to qualify himself to be the perfect sacrifice that God would accept for sinners like us. And so as we place our faith and trust in Jesus and in him alone, we can have forgiveness of sin because of what Jesus did for us. This is the God that we come today to learn more about. This is the God that we come today to worship. And so we are to please God in all respects. And you know, you think about that. We live in a world that really promotes just the opposite, right? That, that we don't please anybody. We don't, we're not to please anybody except ourselves. And as we please ourselves, we are made whole. And so we go throughout this life, they say, and we work to try to please ourselves. If we don't like something, then we don't want to have anything to do with that. And so it's all about us. When we look at the Scriptures, it's just the opposite of that. It's not about us. It's all about God. So I want to set the scene as we look at this book today. And as I said, it's now been 100 years since the people of Judah had returned to their homeland from exile in Babylon. The temple... In Jerusalem, that Haggai and Zechariah had implored the Jews to rebuild has now been rebuilt, and much of the religious activity that came with the temple has now been reinstituted. So, 
The priests were going to the temple every day and performing religious activities. The people of Israel were going to the temple. They were bringing sacrifices and their offerings. They were saying their prayers. But something was majorly wrong. There was religious activity going on, but as we're going to see today, God despises empty religion. You see, the hard part of this as we look at this is this is a brand new generation of people. It's been a hundred years since they came back from Babylon. Their fathers and their mothers were ambivalent towards the things of God. They were obstinate toward God. And because of that, they received the full discipline of God when he allowed the Babylonians to destroy the temple and to exile them out of their homeland. But now a hundred years has passed and nothing has changed. Nothing was learned from the sins of their parents and their grandparents and God's disgust with their sin. Just like their relatives who have gone before them, they would follow tradition. They would even engage in some religious activities, but their hearts were far from God. And so the apple hasn't fallen too far from the tree. The sons and the daughters have have become just like their parents And one of the hardest things about being a pastor is watching folks that I love play games with God. They may dabble in religious activities at times, but there's something wrong with their hearts. That's evidenced by their lack of commitment to the church, their lackluster giving to the church, their lack of engagement with the people of God, and on and on and on we can go with symptoms that show that we have a heart problem. And that doesn't even include their priorities in their private life, like their time in the Word or their lack of time spent in prayer. And so some of us may be thinking, boy, I'm glad that's not me. I'm regular in my church attendance. I even go to Sunday school some of the times. I give up my finances to the church. I interact with church folks. I read my Bible. I pray. But the whole point of what we're going to consider today is where is your heart? Yes, you may be doing those things, but where is your heart? Because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And this book that we're going to look at today is about a group of people who were checking those same boxes, but their hearts were not really in it. They were much like those described in the church at Laodicea who made the Lord want to vomit. You remember the seven churches in Revelation? Well, the church called at Laodicea, very descriptive of what we find about that church in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, where he says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot, and I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You see, God would rather people be hot and on fire for him or cold and want nothing to do with him than those who are lukewarm and playing games with God and practicing empty religion. And this is what we see here as we close out the Old Testament. Religious people playing games with God. So we want to begin at the beginning as we always do. And I want to look at the love of the Father toward his chosen people, Israel. This is an amazing start to this, 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 this book 
from Malachi, whose name means the Lord's messenger. So he's, he's, he's delivering a message. He's delivering a message to these people whose hearts are still far from God, practicing religious activity, but their hearts are not in it. And he begins by expressing his love to them. He says the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, said the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau's Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jacktails of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts. They may, re- they may rebuild, but I will tear it down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and people toward them whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you. So you note here that Malachi begins by reminding the Jews of God's great and abiding love for them. And then what do they say? What is their response? Yeah, right. And just exactly how have you loved us, God? Talk about ungrateful people. Can you even imagine questioning God? After all that God has put up with them, and that's their response? But we see this all the time in real life, right? Even in our own lives. There are a lot of selfish, ungrateful people and they lay the blame with God. Something happens, right? The first thing some folks do is they lay the blame with God. Why did you allow this to happen, God? What kind of love is this? I remember the day that I found out that my mom had taken her own life. 33 years ago now, I received the most devastating news that a person could ever receive. It was so sad I had lost my mom, and she was never coming back. My children would never know their grandmother. And I had my time of of grief. But I never once even thought about blaming God or questioning his love for me. It was really just the opposite. It was him that our family turned to for comfort and care. We did just exactly what 1 Peter 5 and verse 7 says that we're to do. We cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. His amazing love was so evident to our family during that difficult period of time. But so many folks love to play the victim because everything's about them, right? Their, their thoughts, their ideas, their preferences, it's all about them. It's all about what they want and when they want it. I think if I was the Lord, I would probably be so frustrated with these ungrateful people. They haven't learned a thing. <laughs> they haven't learned a thing from history. They watched what happened to their moms and their dads and their grandparents. And God acted Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He disciplined them. 
He allowed the Babylonians to come in and destroy their, their temple and to take them back to Babylon. They were prisoners in another land, all because of their sin and ambivalence toward God. And here their, their kids are now living in Judah. They're living in Jerusalem. They haven't learned a thing. They're acting just like their parents. I think if, if I was, I would be so frustrated with these ungrateful people that I'd just wash my hands of them. But the Lord never does that. The Lord, with great patience, actually responds to their criticism of him, and he reminds them that he loved them, and proof of that love is that he set apart Jacob rather than Esau. Interesting answer, right? Interesting answer. What does that mean, that he loved Jacob and hated Esau? Well, we considered all this when we examined Romans chapter 9 years ago, but you remember that God changed Jacob's name to Israel, right? Why did he do that? Because it was to show his plan to change the world through the line of Jacob. In other words, God is saying here that he is intentionally and lovingly choosing the nation of Israel over every other nation, including Edom, which is represented here by Jacob's brother Esau. If you remember, when we studied the book of Obadiah, Obadiah prophesied about the impending destruction of Edom because of their pride and their arrogance and their violent acts against Israel. And so here God says that Esau's descendants, the Edomites, they can try to rebuild. They can try to rebuild, but God's just going to tear it down again. Why? Because he loves and is protective of his people Israel. We are safe and secure in the hands of God. No man may snatch us out of his hand because he has saved us from our sin. He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. In time, we trust in Christ and he's promised to eternally save us. Nothing can take us out of the Father's hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Can famine do that? Pestilence, tribulation, none of it. None of it can separate us from the love of God. And so he begins here by expressing his love to these people who are not on the same page with him. Our love often is so conditional. We love because we know we're to love, but we love people that think like us, right? So we, we really gravitate towards people who think the same way that we do. So we love those people, but what about the people who don't think like you? What about the, th- the people who don't think like us, who have different ideas than us? What do we do with those kinds of people? That's these kind of people. God has chosen Israel. And the composite of the people that he's chosen are far from him in their hearts. They are religious people. If we fast forward from this time to now, they would be in church today. They would have dropped an offering in the box. Religious people whose hearts are far from God. 
This takes us to some of the details of what's going on here. This is all a very tough pill to swallow because we look at, at what's going on in Judah and we should be repulsed by it. We don't want any part of this. This is not us. And so Malachi begins by sharing the love of God toward Israel. And now in verses six, verse 6 all the way through chapter 2 and verse 9, he wants to expose the sins of the priest. And notice where he starts. He starts with the religious leaders. So first we find here in the second part of verse 6, in the first part of verse 7, the defilement of the temple as these corrupt priests were offering unacceptable sacrifices to the Lord. O priest who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In, in, in that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. Now turn with me back to the old to to earlier uh, back to Leviticus chapter twenty two. <clears throat> These are priests. These are supposedly religious leaders who are leading the people astray. Look at verse twenty one of Leviticus chapter twenty two. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or for a free will offering of the herd of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a, a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord nor make them an offering by fire on the altar to the Lord in respect to an ox or a lamb which has an overgrown or stunted member. You may present it for a freewill offering, but for a vow it will not be accepted. Also, anything with its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord or sacrifice in your land, nor shall you accept any such from the hand of a foreigner for offering as the food of your God, for their corruption is in them. They have a defect. They shall not be accepted for you. You see, when we don't worship God in the way that he deserves to be worshiped, we trample upon his holiness and his majesty. And that's the second sin of the priest. First, they were, they were allowing and receiving unacceptable sacrifices, and they were offering them to God knowing that they are not to do that. And so they were practicing religious activity as well. But it was not being received by God. And so first, we see the defilement of the temple. Second, we see the defilement of the holiness and majesty of God. Look at verse 11, back in Malachi chapter 1. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord, but you are profaning it 
in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. And they should know that better than anybody. They should know that better than all the nations because God has been so patient and long-suffering with them, and yet they continue to trample upon his name. They're not following the way that they are to worship God, the almighty, majestic God of the universe. Instead, they're doing it their way. They're doing it just the way they want to do it, right? They're pleasing themselves rather than pleasing God. Flippantly offering blemished sacrifice, trampling on the holiness and majesty of God. The third, we find here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, that all of their reckless behavior was truly a defilement of the law of God. So look at verse 1 of chapter 2. And now this commandment is for you, O priests, if you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. So what do we have? The people have no godly examples because the priests were corrupt. They were dealing with their own sins. And so what do you think the people are going to do? They're going to sin freely because there's no spiritual leadership to call them out on their sin. And so let's see the lack of spiritual oversight produced in the people. And so now Malachi turns his examination to the sins of the people. And we see these sins here in verses 10 through 17 of chapter 2, the sins of the people. Now I'm not going to read all eight of these verses, but I do want to go down a laundry list of their sins. And, And the first among them is we find wrong marriage wrong marriage. I put up a Facebook post recently that said, it matters who you marry. Some of you may have seen that. It matters who you marry. And, and oh, isn't that true? Just from my own personal experience, I know of so many guys who were especially gifted for ministry, far more than me, and they had a love for the Lord and a desire to serve Christ in full-time pastoral ministry, but their wives ruined any hope of them doing that. They married women who were not on the same page with them on spiritual things. Some of their wives even showed themselves to be unbelievers. My wife cringes every time I mention her in a sermon, but I'm so thankful for her. She's not perfect, just like her husband's not perfect. She's more perfect than me. But she is the absolute best pastor's wife I could ever ask for. She is the real deal, true servant of the Lord, who wants no limelight, no recognition, no praise. She doesn't talk about any of you. 
I've never heard her in 35 years say an ill thing about anybody. She doesn't gossip. She's not a slanderer. She just supports me. But she'll tell me if I do stuff wrong. <laughs> and I'm appreciative of that. Maybe she has a list. But I'm grateful for her. You see, it matters who you marry. This next generation of men who were now inhabiting Judah were marrying foreign wives who had no desire to walk with the Lord. In fact, they married women who were worshiping foreign gods because they were hot, because they were good looking. So in addition to wrong marriage, they gave wrong offerings. They participated in wrong divorce all because they had wrong hearts. And so with this, I'd like to spend just a little bit of time on the subject of divorce. You see that in verse 16? Verse 16 says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed of your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. We often refer back to this designation by God all the way back to the last book of the Old Testament to see that God hates divorce. And so we don't need to wonder what he thinks about divorce, right? He hates it. He despises it. He's repulsed by it. It is outside of his perfect design for marriage. But he also recognizes that while his design for marriage is perfect, not everyone's interested in following his design. And so Jesus spoke about a gracious exemption to God's prohibition against divorce. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 19. So I'd encourage you to turn there. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this subject this morning because I think there's a lot of questions about it. But go back with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed, he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? And so they are no longer two, but they're one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So, unbelievable. The religious people, 
the Pharisees, are trying to play gotcha with Jesus, the Son of God. Well, good try. Remember, the Pharisees had turned divorce into a paper transaction. They thought it was no big deal for them to divorce their spouse as long as they filed the appropriate paperwork. Sadly, as I've learned, the Pharisees had been married and divorced many times, many of them. And so they bring up the law of Moses to try and substantiate their practice and push Jesus into a corner. But Jesus explains to them that God allowed Moses to permit divorce only because of the people's hardness of heart. In other words, the law regulated what was already a common practice, a practice that God was disgusted with, a practice that God addresses very powerfully back in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16. So Jesus says here that divorce has always been contrary to God's plan for mankind and is only allowed in cases of immorality, and I would add unrepentant immorality, because when there's true repentance, there should be true forgiveness. The word for immorality here is the Greek word pornea. It encompasses a wide range of physical acts of sexual sin. So he's not just speaking here of heterosexual adultery, but pornea could include other physical acts of sexual sin like homosexuality and bestiality and incest, and on we can go. Jesus says only in those cases does he permit divorce. He never commands it, he doesn't encourage it, but he makes a gracious concession to the innocent party in an unreconcilable case of unfaithfulness. So turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we continue to examine this idea. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with verse 10, we find the only other biblical exception, and that is in the case of an unbelieving spouse deserting a believing spouse. So we see that here in verse 10, but to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, and then this is in parentheses, so it's not in all the manuscripts, but it's included here because it's in a lot of the manuscripts. But if she does, if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her husband, through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases but God has called us to peace. So there's only one other biblical exception to what he said in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 about immorality, pornea, unrepentant immorality. The only other biblical exception is in the case of an unbelieving spouse deserting a believing spouse. Notice in, in, in verse 12, Paul says, to the rest I say, not the Lord. 
So he's not saying that what he's about to say is not inspired. He's not saying that he's about, what he's about to say is just a personal opinion. He's making the point that Jesus did not teach directly on this particular issue. He spoke of immorality, but he didn't speak of this issue. He's basically saying that previous to this, God has not given any specific revelation on this particular subject. So now he's addressing it. He's addressing it now. We know 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 is clear that a believer is not to enter into a marital relationship with an unbeliever, right? We're not to be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. So he's not talking about a Christian marrying an unsaved person here. He's dealing with a situation in which this has already occurred. And the plain reading of verses 12 and 13 clearly states that if a Christian is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants to be married to the Christian, then the Christian is not permitted to divorce his or her unbelieving spouse. Why? Because he says there's a Christian influence in the home. In a, in a sense, the home is set apart through the believing spouse. The word sanctified there in verse 14 means to be set apart. So Paul's not saying that if there is one Christian in the home, the whole family is going to get saved. We know that's not the case. He's saying that there's a definite benefit for the unbelievers in the family to have a godly influence in the home. Paul says if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, meaning divorce, then let him or her leave. In other words, if the unbelieving spouse is determined to leave and to divorce, do not try to stop him or her. And Paul says that if an unbelieving spouse leaves the believing spouse, he or she is not under bondage, see that in verse 15, no longer under bondage and is therefore free to remarry. And so in God's eyes, the bond between a husband and a wife is dissolved only by death, Romans 7, 2, by pornea, translated immorality in Matthew 19 and verse 9, or the abandonment by an unbelieving spouse that we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15. So most certainly, God hates divorce. He hates divorce. He despises divorce. But the Bible teaches that in rare instances, divorce is permitted, and when divorce is permitted, remarriage is permitted, I believe. And so we move into chapter 3 here. We find Malachi sharing a prophecy of an Elijah-like prophet who will prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And so here we have the preparation for the Messiah. Look at chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So does any of that sound familiar? Could you take an educated guess as to who he's talking about there? This is, you're right. This is a prophetic reference to the ministry of John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Christ, who came before Jesus. He blazed the trail for Jesus. John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. The first Christian joke I ever heard, and I love it, and you've heard me say it. I got to say it again because some of you are new. 
what do John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have in common? They have the same middle name. I, that's my, that's all I got. <laughs> that's all I got. That's all I got. But John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, would be the next prophet to follow, to follow Malachi. Now, I want us to get this because this to, to me is really neat. Because as you may know, between the closing out of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there is a 400-year period of time, right? It's called the intertestamental period. In that 400 years, God is silent. No revelation from God. So from the closing of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew, 400 years of silence. You remember when we started? I said that this was written between 440 B.C. and 400 B.C., right? This is the closing out of the Old Testament. 400 years of silence from God. The next voice of God, the next prophet of God, from this prophet to the next is John the Baptist. He's the next prophet and so 400 years pass before the ministry of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He's the messenger that is referred to here in our passage. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. This is another prophetic reference to the coming of John the Baptist. This one in Isaiah, some 700 years before he came on the scene. And what was John the Baptist's message? His message was, repent and be baptized, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the coming of Jesus would institute a new era in God's spiritual economy, very strategic by the Lord. And then beginning in chapter 3 and verse 6, we find the call to repent. Verse 7 of chapter 3, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. You see how he's tying them back to their fathers? From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And he says here, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And we talked about this a couple of weeks back as it relates to repentance, right? Repentance is the change of mind that results in a change of action, right? So we talked about confession and repentance and how they're not exactly the same. But confession is a part of repentance, but repentance may be borne out over a period of time because it, it involves a changing, a turning from sin. So it's a change of mind that results in a change of action. This is repentance, is what he's talking about here. He's talking about turning, returning to me. If you return to me, I'll return to you. Now he started out by saying he loved them. He had chosen them, but he chose the nation of Israel. So just because he chose the nation of Israel doesn't mean that every person who has a Jewish heritage will be in heaven. 
He chose the nation of Israel. So he's talking to them as the nation of Israel. And he's saying, as a nation, turn back to me. Quit following the ways of your fathers and your grandfathers and those who have gone before. Forget about the sinful priest. I'll deal with them. You turn back to me. And this is a reminder for us that we are individually responsible for being right with God. We can't control what other people do. We can't control what our spouses, spouses do. We can't control what our leaders do. We can't control anything except being faithful to God. And this is, I think, at the heart of what he's trying to say. He's trying to talk to them individually, knowing that he has chosen the nation of Israel. He's talking to each one of them. Look, you need to decide who you will follow. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Look, it's getting increasingly more difficult in this world. And I'm seeing things from Christians uh, as, as a result of this latest Supreme Court ruling. I'm seeing crazy things being said by Christians. Christians. It's getting harder and harder and harder. This is a huge thing for our country, right, in a big picture way. Just like he's talking to the nation of Israel, when we look at the nation of the United States of America, this is a, this is a good step towards righteousness and life. But our nation could, could change all the rules. They could change all the laws. It doesn't mean that every person that's in America is going to heaven, we're each individually responsible for placing our faith and trust in Christ and depending upon Him and desiring to worship the one true and living God and to live our lives for Him. So you get the idea. The nation is off the rails. He's calling the people individually to repent, to change their mind about their sin, to see it the way that God sees it, and return to him. Because there was a time when the nation of Israel was walking with God. Man, they got a terrible track record here in the Minor Prophets though, right? I mean, just one thing after the next, after the next. I felt like I was preaching the same message every time. I, could. I mean, that, that's one of the hardest parts of the redundancy of the Minor Prophets. These people were obstinate, thick-headed people, far from God. Their hearts were not with God most of the time. So why do we have all this? Because we can do the same. We can do the same thing. We can do all the religious activities just like the Jews. We can do all the things that we think we should do. We can check the boxes. But where's our heart? Where's our heart? God calls them to repent. And they have the audacity to level a criticism against the Lord? So in verses 13 through 15, we find Israel's criticism. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And so now we call the arrogant blessed 
Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. So how does all this end up? I mean, this is the end, right? This is the total end of the Old Testament. How does all of this end up? As I've said before, I always like a story or a movie that has a good ending. Why'd you kill off the good character at the end? It would have been so much better if the guy and the gal would get together and they would reconcile and it would be so much better. Well, I like a good ending to the story. And there is a good ending here. And we see this as we close out this book. But he has some more to say. In chapter 3, verse 16, through chapter 4 and verse 6, we see God's amazing grace in action. The Lord's grace. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, And a book of remembrance was written before him, and those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. How can the lines be blurred between the righteous and the wicked? I mean, it seems clear, doesn't it? How could they be blurring the lines? I see it all the time. I see it all the time. Notice here in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, he's talking about the day of the Lord. He's reminding them about the future. What's going to happen in the future? Because God will judge those who don't turn to Jesus Christ and forgiveness, right? This is why there's such an urgency with the gospel message that we're to tell people about Jesus because the day is coming when we will not be here any longer because those who have trusted in Christ will go into the glories of heaven with our Savior. Verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evildoers will be chaff. And the day that is coming will be set ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fears my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts." He talks about the fear of the Lord. So we must ask ourselves the question, because I think this is the guiding principle, should be the guiding principle in our lives, right? Because at the end of uh, Solomon's life in in Ecclesiastes, and by the way, uh, Solomon lived a life of debauchery. He knew better. He knew better. He tried everything that there was possible to try to bring himself contentment except through the one source of contentment. We cannot 
be caught in the same pattern. And so we ask ourselves the question, do we fear the Lord? Because at the end of Solomon's life, he said, this is basically it. (laughs) He says, uh, after all is said and done, fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And this is the thing that he learned. It took him his whole life to learn that. We have a long life to live for the Lord. So we ask the question, do we fear him? What's the difference between the righteous and the wicked? Well, the righteous serve the Lord from a pure heart. When Samuel was imploring the people of Israel as to what pleases God, he said in 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. I want us to close today as we close out the Old Testament. Because remember, in a sense, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets, right? Because the church doesn't start until Acts chapter 2, but there's a 400-year gap here until we see John the Baptist come on the scene. But we ask the question as we close out the Old Testament, where are our hearts? Not, not where are our activities. Where are our hearts? Are our hearts in line with the heart of God? You see, we can, we can pretend. We can even fool one another. But we can't fool God. He sees right through to our hearts. And so we end with the heart condition of the people. We say, we see that God loves them. He's going to pour out His grace upon the nation of Israel. He will do what He promised to do. He is imploring the people to receive what He has to say. Follow me. Return to me with all of your heart. What's the great commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like it, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. All encapsulated in love. You remember how he started? He started in verses 1-6 through by expressing his love to the people. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And for those of us who knew Christ as our Savior, we, I think, dig into something like this and we, we don't want to be like these people who were religious, but their relationship with Christ was suffering. And so this is the charge as we move out of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And as I said, we're going to look at a few of the Psalms here through the summer, and then we'll jump right into um, probably my favorite of all the Gospels, even though I love them all, the Gospel of John. And so we'll look forward to that. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we thank You this morning that we can uh, be pushed by You, we can be cajoled by You, we can be challenged by You, we can look at Your Word, we can ask ourselves the hard questions, we can see uh, how important it is for our hearts to be with You, to fear You, to obey You, to desire to do your will in your way. And so this is uh, important for us. This is a, a good reminder for us to really continue to challenge ourselves, to be introspective in our hearts and in our lives. So we thank you for the challenge today. As you close out the Old Testament, then uh, very interestingly, these are your last words for 400 years. And then... As we move into the New Testament era, it begins to inaugurate the coming of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophesied in the Old Testament, not completely understood. But we understand it. We know that Jesus came for a specific purpose. To die in the place of all who would place their faith and trust in Him. To provide Uh, eternal life, everlasting life for sinners like us who desire to repent and to turn from our sin and to turn to the one and true living God. Lord, in a room this size with this many people, it's certain that there are probably some who are here today that would fall into all kinds of different categories. Protect our hearts and our minds and And help us to not be just those kind of religious people. Empty religion. We do things, but our hearts are not in it. Help us to see that if that's the case. And then also, Lord, for those who don't know Christ as their Savior, I pray that You would touch their hearts and their lives today. Open their eyes to the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray this morning. Amen.